Hello everyone, and welcome back to MIR Meets. Daryl Owens is the head writer for the Discourse Lounge, which is a Substack blog that has a heavy emphasis on topics like housing, public transit, crime, and other issues in the San Francisco Bay Area. So in this episode, we basically talk about all of those things and much, much more. It was an honor to have such a wide-ranging discussion about so many different topics, from homelessness to gentrification to policing to affirmative action and so on and so forth. And it all begins with a pretty wonky discussion about housing affordability and how it relates to what I would call nimbyism. Now, to those of you who may not be aware, nimbyism is what I would describe as a tendency to be anxious or opposed to displacement or change within one's community out of a fear of the way that it might affect your own community. So like opposition to housing development within your own city would be something that I would consider nimbyism. And so, yeah, we talk about nimbyism quite a bit, and we also talk about yimbyism, which is essentially the opposite of nimbyism, being a lot more receptive to community change and growth, and I guess in this specific context, housing development. Hope you enjoy. All right, so Daryl Owens, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. No problem. All right, so to begin, I think obviously we'd like to talk about housing because you you know quite a bit about that. Um, but you made a guest appearance on Time to Say Goodbye, where you sort of had this one quote that I think was a good distillation of what what I think a lot of Yimbyism is sort of trying to um, trying to deal with. Um, so to quote you. I've heard this narrative about homeless people many times. I think to most people who don't like the homeless or are super reactionary, their main issue is they think that those homeless people have made personal bad choices that they shouldn't have to subsidize. So could you try explaining this type of point of view and how it relates to what we might call nimbyism? Yeah, um, I I must be honest that I I think a lot of judgment towards homeless people is not simply just a matter of disliking their living conditions. In my personal conversations with people in my own community, on Nextdoor, for example, on a whole variety of forums and, 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 and platforms and environments, there's, a, there's an idea in American culture. You see this with, you see this with things like welfare reform, um, or you see this with like Medicare that uh, there's this idea in American culture that poor people have made poor decisions. And so for that reason, um, I think that with homelessness, people don't wanna solve it because they feel like it's not their fault. There's a lot of resistance, I think, to the idea of like housing first because to a lot of people, that's giving people free housing, right? You're not homeless because of housing costs. You're homeless because of your poor personal decisions. And actually a really good example of this is I was just reading a, a PPIC poll that's California's Public Policy Institute. People will say the big issue in California, like 20% will say it's homelessness, but then like 10% will say it's housing costs. And there's a really interesting divorce between homelessness and housing costs in the broader public's mind, even though- Like cognitive dissonance, you could say. Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
I don't think it's malicious. I think that just we're just so accustomed to this idea that like it's just a matter of bad choices. And I've just seen this happen so much. Like people will make very little connection between home prices costing a million dollars and rents being $3,000 and the, the, the prevalence of tenant cameras. So uh, on, the, on your guest appearance on Time to Say Goodbye, the, the, the host made a quote that I thought was kind of apt, which is, the tech bros are not necessarily the problem here. The problem is the California homeowner. And like, you, you talk a lot about how like rank and file homeowners, they, they're, they're actually a lot more culpable than they might initially assume to be. And it's like, in a lot of ways, it's not even a, like a racial thing. So could you just like fully expand on like your idea about why you think homeowners are responsible for our current housing crisis? On one hand, there's a leftist tendency to not want to assign individual blame to people because it- Yeah, like it's the system's fault, essentially. Right, right. And you could actually make that case for housing. Um, The American Homeownership Project has very much been a political project as much as an economic project to isolate middle-class Americans from low-income Americans. The whole concept of middle class is very American. I mean, sure, you know, you had your like, you know, bourgeoisie, um, but for the most part in like Europe, for example, there's a lot more class solidarity among people who would maybe be described as middle class with lower income people than here in the United States where, you know, what's the, what's the old phrase? Every renter is just a temporarily embarrassed homeowner, right? The idea is we aspire to have more wealth in our country. And so because of this homeownership system that's been as much of a political product as it's been an economic project, a lot of homeowners are active participants, making it hard to solve the housing crisis because their primary asset kind of in their mind, whether it actually does or does not, depends on there being a housing crisis. Yeah. Um, do, you think, do you think that, what, do you, what would you say to the idea that uh, like, regardless of whether or not it's true, there's this whole idea that America tends to prize home ownership, like disproportionately compared to other first world countries. Do you think that like the whole idea about like buying a home and how it's like worth is never like it's never going to go down? Do you think that was sustainable in the long run? Or do you think that may have been the type of like pyramid scheme that would lead us to where we are today? Yeah, I think that the the I, the problem in the United States, and you kind of see this with the decline of unions, is that more and more of our country's culture has put home ownership as the primary vehicle of middle-class mobility rather than wages and jobs. Um, it used to be that the job you had, you know, determined whether you were middle-class or not. Now it's increasingly, you know, how many homes can you mortgage? Um, and that, that, to me seems very contradictory to our aspirations of a society where everybody has housing. Uh, it's not that there can't be profit made in housing for housing to be abundant and affordable for all. Those aren't contradictory concepts. The problem in the United States is that people will disregard all their other declining forms of life. So declining forms of wage relative to productivity declines in accessibility to things like pensions, such as social security, decline in healthcare, if their primary wealth vehicle, real estate, is still being satisfied with upwards uh, uh, price appreciation. 
And you really saw this in the aftermath of the 2008 recession, where the sort of directive from the federal government and from lending institutions has been to constantly, constantly push up and up home values and actually in many cases discourage the construction of more housing that might threaten that. So yeah, there, these things seem quite contradictory and it's not really a surprise that many issues like tent cities and homelessness really became an issue in the aftermath of the 2008 foreclosure crisis. Yeah, and I think it's kind of interesting to try to fully unpack just how we got here with our housing situation. So could you talk a little bit about your views with regards to the effect that Nixon and Reagan had on housing construction in the U.S.? Well, it's actually really interesting. Under Nixon, a lot of housing had sort of like federally subsidized starts. So we actually had like when there was this whole period of inflation going on that was very um, destructive to the United States economy, like a large portion of housing construction in the United States was federally subsidized. But this was also a sort of transition effect from the temporary hold, which ended up eventually being a permanent hold on public housing that started in the Nixon era. Because there was this backlash against public housing and so Nixon puts an end to it. Then um, Reagan, wait, why, why, why was there a backlash against public housing? Uh, because people thought it was just poor slums and people didn't want it near them. Um, oh, so people, like i guess it was like definitionally nimby back then as well oh yeah very much so um this was like nimby before they used the term nimby um a lot of people had problems with public housing the idea was that they just warehouse the poor they were already in decline because of lack of operational subsidy um there was racial critiques about them that they caused a mass class of people to not be able to build home ownership opportunities. People complained that they were mostly highly segregated. Um, so yeah, by this time, you know, the, the projects had very much had a negative uh, uh, affiliation. And that's why Nixon responded to a lot of conservative attempts to just defund them, or essentially put a hold on the construction of public housing. Then with Ronald Reagan, things change from a supply side oriented housing strategy to a demand side oriented. Yeah, the idea with Reagan is that we should transition to a demand side solution to housing woes rather than a supply side solution. So since the era of the New Deal, the idea has been that people who can't afford housing just need housing built for them that they can afford. Reagan popularizes the idea that instead we should adopt vouchers so that we essentially put more cash flow into the system for low-income people so that they can be able to afford market prices. Um, and this sort of transitions our affordable housing strategy to a voucher system, which many people critique as effectively a subsidy for landlords. Yeah. Um, so I guess when we go, go back to the issues of homelessness and like the issues that surround it. So you wrote this piece that I thought was really fascinating relating Jordan Neely's death to some of the broader problems with the city of San Francisco and some of the solutions that would be necessary to ameliorate some of the problems that existed. So there's this one quote that I thought was kind of fascinating in terms of like, you're, you were proposing certain solutions, for example, certain welfare measures to like help deal with the problem. So you said, quote, it's not even socialism 
This is basic European style social democracy that we used to employ before Nixon and Reagan put an end to it by defunding American cities as part of an urban versus rural culture war. So could you elaborate a little bit on some of the problems plaguing the city and also like some of the solutions that would be necessary to improve it? The really unfortunate thing in America is that our cities do not look great compared to a lot of foreign examples. And it's because of this silly culture war that has started, I don't even know why I'm calling it silly. It was a racist culture war started in the aftermath of the Civil Rights Act in which conservatives really started to campaign against cities as a concept. Yeah, um, like you could, you could make the argument that a lot of the conservative resistance to the civil rights movement was definitionally NIMBY as well. Yeah, of course. I mean, th their idea was is that the cities are these amalgamations of liberal ideas and multiculturalism um, that are an affront to conservative values. And so today, like our most productive areas in the United States that are producing the highest rates of gross domestic product are our urban areas that are our most diverse areas. And they pay far more in federal taxes than they receive in federal assistance. They'll always point to like examples like Detroit or St. Louis or whatever, but our big GDP producers are like New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and they don't get nearly as much federal assistance in housing um, as say rural areas get in agricultural assistance. So these things are completely out of sync. And every time we try to improve our transportation system, improve our infrastructure, these are prides of many foreign nations, right? So uh, you go to Japan, you go to South Korea, you go to many European cities, um, they fund their cities because that's how most people see their country. It's, it's, it's that, that is also the, the sort of civic and cultural capital of their cities. But here in the United States, we have a representational democracy that has a true disdain for our major cities um, and will constantly try to defund it at both the federal and the local level. I wonder how, like... Um, like, a really good example I always, like, point to is... Yeah, like, go ahead. All the Georgia suburbs hate Atlanta, like, don't ever want to give money to Atlanta even though a lot of these suburbs exist because of the economic opportunities that the city provides for them as commuters. Same thing with Memphis. Um, the state legislator does everything it can to defund, to punish, to attack Memphis. And it makes it into the substandard city when Memphis is producing so much economic good for their state. Yeah. So like the whole emphasis on like defunding certain things, do you think that do you think that there are certain forms of yimbyism where like, regardless of whether it's good or bad, it still technically counts as like deregulation, for example, getting rid of like restrictive zoning laws, you could, do you think you could make the argument that some of that is like neoliberalism in terms of the way that it sort of tries to askew government regulation? Sure. Um, but it's kind of a meaningless statement. Like deregulation, meaning what? Getting rid of racial covenants is deregulation. Getting rid yeah. of prohibitions on abortion is deregulation. I yeah. mean, the, 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 the regulation of substance matters. Getting rid of redlining is deregulation. Um, exactly, the idea yeah. is that you evaluate regulations based on how much they contribute to public safety. So rules about seismic safety, for example, rules about fire safety, rules about um, uh, 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 structural integrity are important regulations that if anything should be strengthened, especially if they're evidence-based. That's a good thing. Those are good regulations. But rules about 
uh, how tall an apartment can be or how many units is allowed on site. Like single family zoning, for example, which is one of the most prominent forms of regulatory power um, onto housing by local cities, is not a safety regulation. That does, no one's life is improved or protected from the existence of banning apartment buildings. That's a political, social um, regulation that views a type of person as undesirable in single-family neighborhoods. So yeah, yeah, it's deregulatory to get rid of that. But like, but you know, honestly, the, the function, the, the phrase deregulatory at that point is completely meaningless because the idea behind, say, trickle-down economics and Ronald Reagan was that if you give tax cuts and tax breaks to the wealthy, that they will use their additional disposable capital to invest in businesses and create more jobs. Now, we know that isn't true, and that's not how that works, right? But that's an example of deregulatory um, regulations, getting rid of um, banking regulations so that lenders could be far more callous in how they lend and cause the financial meltdown of 2008. That's deregulatory. Saying that a parcel can build 10 homes instead of one home is not a meaningful use of the term deregulatory. That's just... That, I, I think that when people say that on purpose, they're just trying to obfuscate with known terrible associations of like neoliberal economics with yeah. obvious minor regulatory changes. These are regulatory changes. If a homeowners association says that everybody has to paint a house red and then you make a law saying, actually, you can paint a house whatever you want to. I mean, it's deregulatory in a sort of almost meaningless sense. And that's very much the same thing with things like zoning reform. Yeah, well, I, I think it's, I think it's all a matter of like how to frame these things. I think some of these things, they, I think they form my worldview in terms of like, which aspects of it I would consider left leaning or right leaning. But I guess in, in, in like a broader sphere of just like trying to get these things passed, it is meaningless unless you're just trying to like form a coalition in terms of like phrasing. Um, like may I, I wouldn't be surprised if there are like, a decent deal of like, never Trumpers out there who support Yimbyism because they view it as deregulation. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so anyway, you, um, you had a quote in the podcast as well that I thought was kind of interesting when you said, housing first doesn't mean housing only. So when it comes to dealing with problems regarding homelessness, um, what would you say to the idea that increasing housing supply is like a necessary but not, not sufficient condition for dealing with homelessness? Yeah, so when most people say housing first, they're specifically referring to subsidized housing for the homeless, not even general economics about housing. Um, they're just saying like, look, if you want to get homeless people off the streets and integrated back into society, you should provide them really cheap housing to do so. The criticism against this program mostly comes from the right and skeptical liberals who say homeless people are dealing with drug addiction, mental illness, and other social issues and vices that can't just be solved by giving them a you know, 700 square foot apartment. The problem with the idea that, liberal, that, that skeptical liberals and conservatives have towards housing first is that it's a bit of a straw man because most homeless service providers don't actually believe that. Nobody seriously thinks that if you just give a homeless person who's lived unsheltered homeless um, who, who's been an unsheltered homeless person on the street for years, a housing unit, that all of a sudden their problems are going to be resolved and everything. But nobody's claiming that. What they're saying is that 
things like drug rehabilitation, um, uh, recovery from alcoholism, mental illness, medical services, all those things are predicated on the existence of housing for that homeless person. Because those services don't work if they're just living out on the street. Nobody's going to recover from drugs and alcohol and get their prescriptions for various mental illnesses they have if they are living out on a box or they are living in their car. The housing unit, home housing first is literally what it says. Do the housing first and then engage in the various uh, 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 economic and, and uh, medical rehabilitations that exist thereafter. But none of those things work until you get the housing down. Yeah, so necessary but not sufficient condition for improving their lives, essentially. But most importantly, the first condition. Yeah. So it's like it's, you have to do it first in order to do the other things that would make it sufficient. Right. Yeah. Um, but like regarding the shockingness about how bad a lot of the problems of the Bay Area have become, you, I'm going to quote you in the podcast again when you said, it doesn't do progressives any good to pretend it's not bad. Do you think, do you think there's like been a tendency among progressives to sort of like downplay the issue either out of like some left-wing tendencies or because they themselves haven't experienced it? I don't remember what my quote was in response to that. I think it was either in response to the proliferation of encampments or it was in response to the general crime problems. I think it was both. I think it was both. And like, basically the whole idea was like, it doesn't do progressives any good to pretend it's not bad because if, if they do that, then reactionaries win the day because they're the only ones talking about the issue. Okay, sure. So yeah, I think that like whenever progressives want to solve problems such as rampant property crime or, 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 or general violent crime on all these issues that a lot of big cities are dealing with, um, there's a tendency to want to focus on the high level abstraction of it, which is like income inequality and so on. And, the pro- and to say that like focusing on the low level issues and how it manifests is unimportant or shouldn't be discussed. And I don't think it works. It doesn't appear to work as the strategy of getting popular support to start, um, you know, redistributive programs to say that, like, hey, look, I agree with you that the homeless encampments are, like, pretty awful to look at, right? Like, they're not great to see, but the solutions to them are housing first. Although, really, I don't even think progressives say that. So I think that usually... That, that, that quote must have been in the context of the crime problem. And I think that in that case, that is an example of where a lot of progressives will pretend like, because progressives will be honest that like the encampments look terrible, but that the solution is housing first, right? Um, I think the problem is when it comes to like a lot of other social vices, um, like rampant property crime or stuff. Like, for example, we were talking about uh, like smoking on the subway. Like yeah. that was a very funny topic on twitter in which you had this like really weird clique of progressives who basically wanted to pretend like people doing antisocial stuff on the subway is like not a problem actually this came up with um the jordan neely piece i wrote and i i talked about how like yeah you can say that like on the train and screaming about how they're going to hurt somebody is not good and it's something that should probably be looked into it shouldn't be responded to with deadly force um Unless, of course, someone does something deadly. There are, of course, bigger social 
socioeconomic issues and, and income inequality that leads to people being in that state, you can acknowledge all those things while also acknowledging that the way it manifests is also very uncomfortable, if not threatening. Because obviously, yeah, and, and if you the, and if you don't acknowledge that, then maybe it creates a space for reactionaries to like to like yeah. convince people that you could have convinced otherwise. Because they're playing dumb. Like everybody knows it's uncomfortable. If 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 you know, and, and so the point with the Jordan Neely situation is that like if Jordan Neely had food and housing. He wouldn't be screaming on the train about how he wants to hurt people, right? Or, or that he's going to hurt people. I've rode public transit my whole life. I, you know, I, I've, I've barely driven. And I know how uncomfortable it is and how outright terrified a lot of people get when somebody suffering from psychosis comes onto the train and starts making a bunch of commotion. Sometimes it turns violent. The point, though, is that rather than pretending it's not a problem, which a lot of people were doing online, which is very silly, yeah, but well, instead, that's just like the like the like the standard like it's not that many standard deviations away from like normal Twitter brain silliness. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. when when that socialist lady from uh, New York City was like, I actually don't think you should be smoking crack while my kid is on the subway. Like, and everyone's like, why don't you just ignore it? Why don't you just move to another car? Like, that's dumb, because now normal people who agree that antisocial behavior that disregards the concern of other people around them are going to be only able to talk about this issue with pro carceral reactionaries rather than saying, yeah, I do think this is an issue. I don't think it's okay to smoke crack on the subway. I don't think it's okay for, you know, people to be suffering from psychosis and here are the solutions to it. But some people just like want to pretend like that's not the issue. I will say though, that it is mostly a online thing. Like I think in the real world, progressives are quite willing to admit that like, these are things that make them terribly uncomfortable, but that they have actual systemic answers to them. Do you think some of the online silliness, do you think it ever has the potential to trickle into real world movements? Or do you think it's mostly just like quarantined off to just like the silly corners of the internet? I think in practice, it's mostly quarantined off to the silly corners of the internet. They do make useful idiots for reactionaries. There are people who online do manifest their really fringe ideas into real world action, but by and large, most serious progressives do not actually encounter it. Um, it mostly exists as a convenient straw man for conservative reactionaries to point to. Um, and that, that is, that, that's its own thing. Yeah. Um, so I guess then like the whole thing about, um, do you think maybe, maybe they have the potential to like persuade people that are terminally online, but not people that are like out in the real world movements? It's kind of hard to say what's a real world movement and what's not. I just think that the general idea, you know, you go on college campuses or any space that allows for a lot of unique points of views that you will never see in the real world. But I do think that there are serious answers, progressive answers to a lot of social problems that are not going to be informed by someone terminally online that, you know, has like weird, like super anarchist tendencies. Like this stuff is just not relevant to the real world. Yeah, but it, it, it does. It does manifest itself because um, reactionaries will maybe point to it as an example of your platform. So, for example, when I support housing first and say, it also comes along with a whole host of drug addiction, um, rehab, and all these things. 
um, you know, some moron who's a reactionary will say, oh, but look at this tweet from somebody who says that it should be okay to be a drug addict, alcoholic on the street. It's like, you know, you're, that's, a, that's a convenient straw man for you. But focusing on the people who are terminally online is really pointless because reactionaries will always find a new straw to grasp with. Remember, their motivations are just purely emotional. Um, and they will find something else to use to mischaracterize your position uh, regardless of whether useful idiots agree with it or not. Yeah. Um, do you think... So, like, for example, when it comes to, like, your substack and the degree of, like, honesty that you're willing to have with regards to a lot of these um, questions, like, for example, crime in urban areas, do you think that, like, you you have the potential to, like, prevent people from becoming reactionaries because you propose, like reasonable solutions but are willing to be like more honest um online yes i i genuinely believe that for example i'll use my race relations article um in the Bay Wait, Area, which, which, which race relations article there are many oh uh, there's many uh the most famous one is probably the black and asian race oh, relations. yeah i i personally love that article um yeah, but that was a very contentious article. Um, and the reason I wrote it is because I felt like in the discourse leading up to that article, there was no honest discussion about the status of race relations in the Bay Area. Yeah, wait, do you um, think could, do you think it's like applicable to use like a both sides analogy for this specific case? Or I don't really consider it a both sides analogy. I just think that if you see a valid viewpoint that you should acknowledge it rather than sort of tuck it away because it's not convenient or because you feel like it could advance arguments that are not favorable to you. But so, in, in reality, if you acknowledge it, it could actually advance your own argument because you're getting people onto your side. Yeah, of course. Like people will, people were more inclined to listen to what I have to say because I'm willing to acknowledge pain or harm that they were experiencing. So for example, in that article, there were a lot of attacks against Asians committed by criminals who happen to be black. I do think that some degree of that happens to do with how the Asian community is perceived among a lot of black residents. Um, and to acknowledge that that was true, while also acknowledging that there was pervasive anti-blackness in the Asian community, um, made it easier for both Asians and black readers to be like, okay, this is somebody who's going to speak honestly. Because you can tell when you selectively read articles that like omit the race of the offender when the victim of a crime is Asian, but will hyperemphasize it if the victim if the victim is black, like then Asian readers read that and go, oh, this is unfair, right? Or to the contrary, um, if black residents get told how much they are dumb and stupid compared to Asians, etc., then they feel like, oh, this is just more anti-blackness by this community. So acknowledging that there are degrees of bigotry in both communities and having a frank conversation about it enables people to uh, yeah frankly agree with my position to be totally honest about it and i think i mean that's the whole point of writing a persuasive essay i wasn't writing that essay for people who already agreed with me i was writing that essay for what i saw were many both black and asian americans in the bay area who were getting increasingly polarized on Twitter at a peak of very volatile race relations. Yeah, and I, I, I really hope that you did manage to persuade some people because I thought it was a very compelling piece and I'm very glad that uh, you wrote it. Um, there, there was a lot of partisan hate. Um, I, I will be honest that a, a lot of, the, the majority of hate I got from that article was by some Asian folks. Um, 
However, I also got a lot of hate from black people too, that I, I was giving too much um, courtesy to the Asian side. And then uh, there was these like, like race war protagonists and sorry, not protagonists, antagonists um, who were saying that like any acknowledgement of anti-blackness is fake and blah, blah, blah. Um, but in real life, when I turned off the machine and talked to people in real life, I had, you know, Asian American community members coming up to me and thanking me for that article. I had black community members saying, you know, wow, that was so profound. So it's just one of those examples of like terminally online antagonists trying to, you know, stir fire and, and division and conflict versus people in real life who may not post as much, but are oftentimes far more impacted by the work you do. Yeah, and I'm, I'm very proud of that. I think in general, persuading people is like orders of magnitude easier when you're doing it in person compared to some random online forum. Um, yeah. Yeah. So to, to pivot back into homelessness, could you elaborate on your view about how we need to fund social security to reduce homelessness rates? I think that the pro if you go to a homeless encampment in California, I mean, so many of the people there are old. And, you know, Jay Caspi and Kang talked about this too, like, and he's got a lot of experience talking to a lot of homeless residents. They're very old. You go back to the 60s and stuff, you see homeless people, they're mostly like young kids that are traveling and stuff. Our homeless population is rather elderly. I think in the recent Benioff report, they average somewhere in the late 40s. Um, now, of course, it's not elderly, but the fact that that's the average or the median um, indicates that there's a sizable distribution of homeless people who are poor and old, old. Of course, all of them. Um, and the common cause of this is that we don't have good uh, financial security for senior citizens in this country. Um, Social Security is, is a program that is actually really good, but has constantly been attacked by the right into its usefulness. We have a pointless cap on it to where we can't tax people who make more than 160K for social security, but in doing so would actually save social security from the, the, the bankruptcy it would face. Um, these are problems that we need to fix and giving elderly people pensions and their older age when they're retired would give them spending money so that they're not homeless. Um, but because we don't have these programs in place, we have a homeless population become disabled. And as soon as you become a senior citizen, and your ability to work diminishes, you are oftentimes forced to just be homeless. And that is a, a, a national embarrassment. Yeah. Um, well, I think the problem with Social Security is twofold. One is that it's being attacked by the right. I think another problem with it is just simply the fact that um, with the fact that like fertility rates are declining and our immigration thing like is bad. Um, I think the fact that the population is not really increasing that much makes it hard to fund pensions because it was originally like relying on this system of like endless population growth that isn't really feasible anymore. Well, um, well, well, to be fair, Social Security, when the way Social Security basically works like a savings account. And the problem is that um, right wingers incorrectly call it a Ponzi scheme. But the problem is that it's limited to people who make 160K. It's, it's capped in terms of who you can tax to fund social security with, because the idea is that people who make more than that aren't going to be using social security. They'll have their own pensions. But if you remove that taxation limit and tax people who make more than 160,000 a year for social security, it will not collapse. We just don't have the willingness to do that. However, I do agree with you 
to that um, there is a population growth problem and that we do have a rapidly aging population. This poses an issue for a lot of schemes. And part of the answer to that is that we should increase our immigration rates. Yeah, well, I think both the, the, the inc- like getting rid of the cap and the increasing in- immigration rates are both extremely politically unpopular, uh, which just brings us back to the standstill that we're in right now. Well, most um, Americans support it. The, the problem is you have a lot of activists on the conservative side who... who wait, we're talking about getting rid of the cap, right? For this. Oh, sorry. The, the cap, the cap I, I'm not sure how the cap falls. Um, But if you're talking about immigration, I mean, most Americans do support um, immigration to the United States. The the weaponization of it by conservative media is a whole other thing. But it's so bizarre because immigration to the United States increases our economic productivity tremendously. It's ironically a a very neoliberal position. But it's also a very good social position, too. Well, yeah, it's it's a neoliberal position that I support. Um, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, I guess... I think I think uh, immigration is a little bit is slightly more unpopular than I would think. Like I, I think I think I have a slightly more pessimistic view about the the political popularity of immigration. But to to move on, um, this is this is another article that you wrote that I thought was very interesting, and I appreciated your honesty. I think in the present day, would you say that there are like large swaths of like people that might characterize themselves as left wing but like sort of use opposition to gentrification as a way to signal like nimby sentiment sure yeah um i presume you're going to talk about the dictionary article um i think it's i think i'm going to talk about the look of gentrification article oh okay that one um yeah of course i mean there's a lot of Everybody knows this in the local housing world, that when it comes to like housing development opinions, they're not really partisan. Um, Whether someone's a progressive or a conservative doesn't usually inform their housing development opinions. Everyone likes to pretend it does, but you have like weird second axis of like Yimby and NIMBY, and then you have progressive and moderate, and people will just scatter themselves all over the place. Um, especially in the Bay Area, you have one contingent of progressives, especially in the suburban areas, that are like super supportive of building more housing because they think it lowers housing costs and because it, you know, it increases housing availability. Um, and then you have another contingent of progressives who are like in San Francisco that think that like all housing construction that's not publicly subsidized is bad and causes gentrification. And so usually whether you like or don't like housing development kind of informs your opinions on it and then you'll characterize it based on your ideology as a progressive or a moderate. Most opposition to housing we deal with in real life mostly comes from people who would probably describe themselves as moderates or conservatives who will oppose it because they don't like the threat of renters. They think that it's going to decline property values, even though things like eliminating exclusionary zoning actually increase the amount of property rights you have. So you would think it would be something that ideologically conservatives would agree with, but conservatives let their social issues override the actual alleged ideological pillars they have and say, actually, no, I'm a NIMBY. On the flip side, you have progressives who just may hate housing for the same reason. They don't like how it looks. They don't want more people in their neighborhood. They don't want their neighborhood to change. Um, So progressives will be like, I don't like housing because of the, st- the typical bog standard NIMBY reasons, but they're kind of embarrassed about that, maybe subconsciously, so they wash it with 
oh, actually, it's because I'm opposed to developers making profits. It's because I'm, I, this isn't going to solve the housing crisis. This, this is about greed or whatever. And when their bog standard um, actual opposition is just rooted in standard NIMBY stuff. So both progressives and conservatives wash their nonpartisan NIMBY takes with their partisan ideology. Yeah, so I guess like a left-wing, a left-wing NIMBY might like use gentrification or at least like like thinking of like I'm trying to avo- like resist the evils of gentrification. They might use that as a way to justify their own NIMBYism. Yeah, and they're not necessarily and and it, okay, this gets weird because like there's a lot of areas where gentrification is a big issue, and so talking about gentrification, of course, makes sense. But like in Philadelphia, where they're like opposing a dog park, um, or they're opposing housing on top of like a a, a dog park or whatever, um, the there, the people's opinions are clearly just like, I don't want this housing, I don't want this density here. But that's not necessarily a progressive take. So instead, it's like, actually, no, I'm concerned about gentrification in a neighborhood that is um, has a lot of, that has already long been gentrified. This is very common in the Bay Area. You'll, you'll hear people talk about gentrification, and they'll always be like, this apartment in this neighborhood where the median income is like over $100,000 is gentrification. When it's like, no, it's not. Gentrification in most areas is wealthy people replacing poor people in existing housing, which usually happens when you have a tremendous housing shortage. So, I mean, that's what gentrification looks like. But focusing on new buildings makes it a lot easier to call it gentrification. Um, But I mean, gentrification is still like a clear and well-defined thing. It's just, it's bizarre how it's manifested because you see this online too. A lot of people just boil down gentrification to something looks different tomorrow or something looks new tomorrow, which is not what gentrification and, is. But if you have that definition of gentrification, then essentially you're trying to justify your own nimbyism. Yeah, of course, but everybody does that. Because nimbyism is very nonpartisan, at least in my experience. It doesn't mean you can't oppose a development project, by the way, that may genuinely actually be harming people. But if you say, like, on an empty lot, building a new apartment building is gentrification, and there's really no research or data to support that claim then usually people are just kind of, and not even necessarily in a bad way. I don't think these are bad people. I think that they're just kind of naturally washing their standard NIMBY opinions with their ideological predisposition. Yeah. Um, so to, to pivot to on to yet another topic, um, could you elaborate on like some of your views on like trying to improve policing in America? Because I think you made an argument once that like one way to improve policing would just be the addition of medium term punishments rather than like having like not that many of them and having like very strict like punishments once you get to a certain threshold. So that was a guest article I wrote. I can't remember his name, um, but he wrote a really compelling article. This kind of changed my opinion on policing quite a bit, which is that, and it, it doesn't mean that the European models of policing or the Asian models of policing are perfect. But I think in the United States, our policing is very bizarre in that you can get away with committing crimes here a lot, but when you get caught, the punishments are severe. And it leads to this kind of hyper-militarized police force where every individual officer is like an armed army walking around punishing people. Well, I think the like the hyper-militarization, some of that is because of the increased prolific proliferation of firearms in the u.s no of course yeah absolutely um and i this is something that kind of frustrates me too when we kind of talk about policing an obvious reason why american police are more deadly than other countries is because everyone here has a gun 
Um, there's more guns in this country than there are people in the United States. So the gun proliferation problem is huge. And the justification of a potential gun behind every dashboard, behind you know every person, um, warrants this, or, or at least politically warrants this major uproar for these hyper-armed officers. But the truth of the matter is that police fatalities are not high. And when, and this is something I talked about in my depolicing transportation project. When we tried to work on depolicing tra uh, traffic enforcement. To move to more of a civilian or automated system, police officers will say that traffic stops are very deadly and everyone has a gun and therefore there's a high rate of fatality among officers. But like, for example, in this 2019 study published in the Michigan Law Review, um, a police officer was murdered like one out of every 6.5 million stops in Florida. Um, any variant of assault from spitting to, to, to serious injury occurs one out of every 6,500. So danger and violence at traffic stops are actually pretty rare. And police officers mostly get killed in things like police chases or car crashes, um, which are not inherently related to firearms. So it is true that the American police force is hyper-militarized because of the prevalence of guns in this country. It would be nice if police officer associations lobbied for stricter gun laws, but oftentimes they don't. Uh, but at the same time, it doesn't really get away from the overall point, which is that in the United States, uh, police officers are often very expensive and there are not very many of them relative to a lot of European countries. So people get away with crimes, but when they're caught, the punishments are much more severe and it actually does really nothing to, to deter crime. This is one of the reasons why there's a lot of compelling arguments for more community policing, where people who actually live within their communities have a degree of enforcement rather than the departments where a lot of the officers live in suburbs miles away. Yeah, I guess um, I, I really like trying to find interesting takes about how to improve the U.S.'s policing. I guess there's a part of me that's also kind of sympathetic to the whole like Matt Iglesias-esque argument about how like um, we need to sort of, um, well, it's partly like increased like representation of specific groups that tend to be impacted more, but also just the idea. Um, I think he brought up the idea that you could trade job security for higher wages. I think that might be a disagreement that he has with you because I think you've argued that police officers get paid too much. Um, I mean, but yeah, police officers do get paid too much. I mean, they are very expensive. But part of the reason why is because the state funds uh, prisons, not really police. Police is more of a local funding initiative, whereas the state government really puts all their money into prisons and correction officers. This is a total bungling of how criminal safety or, or how criminal justice should work. Um, incarcerating people is really the last thing we want to do, except for obviously highly offensive crimes. If that money went into more people on the street ensuring safety, that would be much better than putting people in prison because long-term punishments like that don't really deter crime. That's an argument that I've actually been pretty convinced by. Um, it's that, yeah, the police officers get paid too much, but in to some degree, there's kind of too few of them. So you would actually want to spread that out. A lot of police pay, by the way, is overtime. So it's a lot of police officers doing work that they actually shouldn't be doing. 
because there so, are not enough of them yeah because they're they're, they're just collecting overtime and because the state is funding prisons so this is i mean it's it's a it's it's kind of complicated but, but basically the the argument that i've increasingly been convinced by i didn't make it but i think it's a good one is that this the state puts way too much money into prisons we should really be defunding prisons and funding more community safety initiatives. And the reason I'm saying that rather than police is because while it's true that Europe often has more police officers in the United States, they're not doing the same things that police officers in the United States are doing. So for example, like there's a lot of unarmed civilian um, safety uh, agencies that we would not necessarily consider police in the United States, such as, for example, parking enforcement. So expanding, you know, you want more eyes on the street, but they don't have to be people carrying guns and canines, right? Like that's the difference. But that's yeah. also just the short-term answer to like various violent crimes and, 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 and interpersonal conflicts. Obviously the long-term answer is income inequality, economic stability, so on. And that's going to obviously require a lot more than just the funding police departments. I mean, a lot of that is just restructuring of how our economy works. Do you th wait, so do you think that in terms of like the way to improve police departments, it's like have more officers, um, would you say like give them less pay or like, you know how there's often like a trade off between job security and like wages. So like the idea that Iglesias tried to float once would be that like, on the one hand, you pay police officers more, but on the other hand, they have much less job security. So it's a lot easier to fire them for infractions. Um, I think based on what you've said, I think you would disagree with this characterization that they don't get paid enough. But do you think there's like the whole idea about like- I mean, having, if you look at, sorry, go ahead. Do you think you would agree with his idea about like giving them less job security so it's easier to fire them over individual infractions? Oh, of course. I mean, everybody wants to get rid, well, I don't know everybody, but like we should absolutely get rid of things like qualified immunity. Um, we should absolutely be able to prosecute police officers, of course. But I'm not necessarily convinced that police pay is low. I mean, if you factor in pensions and everything, a lot of officers are raking in over 200K. But like maybe the the fact the problem is factoring in pensions. Maybe we should like take some of that pension money and like either like not have it or like like make it so like in terms of like the immediate money that they get on like on a day to day basis of doing their job, not including overtime. Because overtime just, is like a go ahead. I just I just think that the most effective thing that could be done for public safety outside of income redistribution at this point or economic mobility for poor people, because poor people commit crimes. Like that's how it works. If they're not poor anymore, they're not committing crimes. And our public capacity would be a lot more better. Um, uh, we'll see much better yield in terms of funding poor communities rather than just obsessing over how we can restructure police departments for the umpteenth time. But I'm not somebody who thinks that absolute abolition of police departments tomorrow is going to solve crime or anything. And I'm not convinced that getting rid of police. Well, yeah. Then. Do you think theory? I think theoretically you could make the argument that like abolishing it would potentially make things worse um sure i mean yeah i don't because it would like tomorrow we would just turn into south africa right where like they just privatize their local police departments and uh neighborhoods have their own private police forces that's even worse than a public police department but the general idea that you should take money away from punitive um uh, answers and use it to fund economic investment is absolutely true. And I think that there should be a lot more focus on prisons. Like prisons are just a big waste. We have the highest prison population on the planet. 
Um, it doesn't work to stop crime. It is it. A police officer catching a kid for stealing and telling them not to do it again has far more of an impact on that kid stealing than throwing him in prison for five years. Like it just doesn't make any sense. So we really need to. I'm very much on board of like just defunding prisons tomorrow and redistributing a lot of that money to economic rehabilitation programs, but also having the state fund uh, community initiatives that are kind of police, at least in a lowercase p way, as it's described in the rest of the world, but they're not necessarily people who are ultra armed and, and uh, people like, like we train, police officers are kind of like Swiss army knives. They're like learning like how to respond to mass shooter situations in the same way they're learning how to respond to domestic violence. These are just like two completely different fields that you can't make one person deal with all of them. Um, so you want to break down a lot of how we respond to different types of crimes, social issues, low-level offenses, high-level SWAT necessarily. Because yeah. uh, like do, like a domestic issue or like like a counseling session or violent crime, those are all things that like society needs funding to deal with. Yes, of course. And you don't want the same person dealing with all of them. Police officers in the United States are very much a Swiss army knife way of a, a, attacking crime. And that's why they bring a gun to every situation. But that's not necessary. Right. We don't need that. We already agree that parking doesn't need to be done by armed police officers. You can establish more of that with other types of infractions. I think like parking enforcement is actually one of the most successful forms of depolicing in a way and that it's it's enforcement that's being done not by armed officers, but by uh, public patrols and, and employees, city employees. Yeah. Um, I think another thing Iglesias may have convinced me of is I think theoretically you could make the argument that like diversity initiatives, like regardless of what you think of how they've like been executed with regards to specific corporations, I think you could make the argument that they could improve policing in terms of like how certain demographics are less likely to use violent force than others. Um, yeah, but um, go ahead. Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, it is true. I think that in general, like I have some sympathy for officers because I would never want to be a police officer in this country where everyone's got a gun. Um, I, I just like, I would like people, people are such cowards. Pe people get guns, kill so many people in the United States. It's unbelievable. Um, so I don't really blame people for being a little spooked at times, but this is also why we should really segment out the kinds of things police officers are doing. I don't think that somebody who's doing patrols to like deal with theft should be the same people who's doing patrols to like deal with guns. It's just, our, our, we need to segment out and like how we talk in programming of modularity. We, we need to like sort of segment out different ways of responding to crimes with drastically different training programs for each. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is going to require more funding. Maybe, maybe we'd like, spend a lot less funding on prison systems and a lot more funding trying to understand how to like reform and like add many different layers to policing. Sure. I agree. But at the same time, it, this should very much be a state prerogative. I don't see why localities should be spending more on officers than they already do. It's clearly the state that needs to stop spending money on police, uh, sorry, on correction officers and um, prisons and instead spend it on public safety and economic investment. All right. Yeah. So to, to move on, um, would you would you be down to talk a little bit about the, the recent affirmative action ruling? Oh, yeah, sure. I just did an article on it. 
Yeah, I, I read your article and I have I think I have a I have a lot of different thoughts about it. I have some areas of agreement and some areas of disagreement. Please um, disagree because it's boring when people always agree. Yeah, it's boring. I think I think we need to have more good faith disagreement about like like issues relating to affirmative action. Sure, um, go ahead. Yeah, so like um I'm going to I'm going to quote you and quote your article right now. Uh quote the idea Asians must score high SAT scores is largely a myth pushed by certain college recruiters and a common misunderstanding of one ultra-viral 1990s study about SAT scores by race. The author of the study has repeatedly stated that it doesn't conclude discrimination because it lacks additional educational and income var variables. So to quote, um, to quote the author of the study, Espen Shad, he said, I understand the worry of Asian students, but do I have a smoking gun? No. All right. So to, to be frank, I think that you might have been like um, confounding two separate questions into one um, where like the first question is, do Asians need to like score disproportionately high SAT scores in order to like get into the same institutions? And the second question is like, is there discriminate like an act like active discrimination against Asians on the basis of their race? I think that like it's possible for the answers to one of those questions to be yes, while the answer to the other question is no. Um, like, for example, well, which one I, do you think is the yes and the no? Then? Okay, so I think the answer to the first question is yes. This the answer to the second question is inconclusive. Um, Sorry, and the first question is: so you're saying you think there's a, there, there's a need for Asians to score high SAT scores, but you think that the evidence of Asians being discriminated against in admissions is inconclusive? Yeah, like this is like for example, are you familiar oh, okay. with? Yeah, I, my opinions are completely backwards. Though. All right. Oh, so like you have the exact opposite opinions as me. At least there, I do think that there is discrimination against Asian applicants and admissions. I'm not convinced that it that there is these, this this demand for Asians to get high SAT scores. Now. All right, I guess I, I guess I disagree with you on that, and I think part of it is like the article you linked. I think it actually like it actually gives evidence that like they do need to um, do high, like high high SAT scores. I'm gonna I'm just gonna pull it up right now. Since sure, I, yeah. All right. Um, so uh, to click on the like the, the, the it's the hyperlink that you gave with the author of the study. So I'm gonna I'm gonna quote the the article right now. Quote: Significant advantages and disadvantages exist for members of some racial and ethnic groups with regard to the SAT or ACT scores they need to have the same odds of admission as members of other groups. So like it's it's very like blatantly saying that like there are significant advantages or disadvantages that exist for like different races, like within the article that uh, you linked. Um, so like, well, what go ahead. Sorry, about, sorry, I, I should interrupt you. All right, yeah. So like for the test score advantage, it says among the potential bombshells in the book are the data on the advantages or disadvantages of SAT or ACT scores by race, race ethnicity, and economic class. Many studies, including those released annually by the College Board and the ACT, show gaps in the average test scores by members of different racial or ethnic groups. This research takes that further, however, um, yada, yada, yada. So, like, it says that, um, so basically it has this, like, like scaling factor of, like, advantages by race and class on the SAT and ACT at selective colleges. So basically assume that, like, for what like like a positive score means that like it's easier for you to get into in, in like an elite institution like and basically it's like it's like they're curving your grade upwards where a negative Sorry, score would be are you talking about the 1990s study yeah okay just i just want to be clear i just want to be clear you were talking about that study not something else okay yeah, go ahead yeah it's the 1990s study where like um like a white person would be like uh, like a zero because like they're the default and then 
for Asians, they, they automatically curve the score downwards. That's what the study found. So I do think that like strongly suggests, um, and I would agree with, I guess the, the conclusion that I would go to is that Asian, I do think that Asian students do need to score disproportionately high SAT scores in order to get into colleges compared to other races. Um, so just to be clear, you, you disagree with me on that issue, right? Right. But um, also, what do you make of the author's take that it's not a smoking gun? He said that it's not a smoking gun in terms of discrimination, like active discrimination. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to I'm just going to control F on the argument. All right. So it says at the same time, he said he understood that these numbers would certainly not reassure Asian applicants or those who believe they are suffering discrimination. Yeah. So like they're like, once again, there are two different questions. There's the question of do they need to like like have disproportionately high SAT scores? And the second question would be like, do you like are they like suffering active and conscious discrimination? It's like, um, so like to bring like a complete, like a, this is like a, like a completely different topic, but like, this is a, like a similar example. So like, you, do, are you familiar with the Richard Reeves, like thesis about the gender pay gap where for example, yeah, it's, yeah, I know it's not the product of active discrimination, but it still like hurts one demographic in a way that needs to be ameliorated. So like theoretically it could be that where like, there's not like active discrimination against Asians, but like they still need disproportionately high test scores in order to get into the same institutions do you disagree with that um sorry say the question one more time all right so like um obviously you're familiar with the richard reeves thesis about like when it comes to the gender pay gap and how like women get paid less theoretically there could be two forces at once where like on the one hand it's not the product of conscious discrimination but on like oh, okay so you're saying this is like the pay gap where like women get paid less but it's because it could just be in less paying roles or uh, or, yeah, or because, or, or like for like, like maternity leave and the way that disrupts like your like natural advancement through like a company in a way that's bad and like we we should definitely like still help address that because there's still an inequality regardless of whether it's the product of discrimination. Does that make sense? Sure, sure. But the, you're saying the discrimination is not at the point of admission. The discrimination is at the point of external variables. Well, I'm saying that like regardless, like the whole thing about whether or not discrimination is the point, I think that's inconclusive, but I do strongly believe that there are variables that show that you would need a disproportionately high SAT score, regardless of whether the discrimination is conscious and active. Yeah, I, I have to disagree because the study isn't necessarily saying that. What it's saying is that of the applicants who applied, they needed to, but it's not, it's not conclusive that it is because of their race. Okay, I like, guess I guess we're gonna have to agree to disagree on this. Well, no, 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 I, I think that we should, so, so I think that like the author says that like, okay, he says that he noted that while his formulas are more notably complete than typical test score comparisons by race and ethnicity, he doesn't have the softer variables such as teacher and high school counselor recommendations, essays, and list of extracurricular activities. It is possible, he said, that such factors explain some of the apparent SAT and ACT disadvantages. But doesn't that like doesn't that coincide with the whole like thing about like stereotyping Asians about like how they have bad personality types or whatnot? And like maybe like like are you trying to make the point that, for example, when it comes to Asian sure, students, yeah. Like, I agree with, but that's what I said. I, I think that that's actually a real thing. Okay, so... Even though, even though the Harvard lower court case, I didn't mention the article, but the Harvard lower court case said that there wasn't evidence that um, Asian students had been discriminated against with phrases like they're robotic or standard more than any other ethnic group per se. Um, yeah, like the whole like the whole stereotype that Asians like tend to have worse personalities. But I didn't, um, I didn't really agree with that, really, but, but yeah. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so like, do you think that like the, the whole thing about how like they, like they need higher test scores. So I guess right now, okay. So they're, once again, they're, they're like several different strains to pull on. So like, I think right now I still strongly believe that Asians have to like score higher test scores in order to get into the same institutions. But I think what you're saying is like, it doesn't refute that. What you're saying is like, it's like, it's like another confounding factor where like they might have to score higher SAT scores, but it could potentially be offset by like a lack of extracurriculars or whatever. To, to be fair, I think that saying it's a myth is a little strong. Um, it may have been better to say it's inconclusive. I might actually go change that because the yeah. article, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, disconfirm the theory it just simply says that it doesn't necessarily confirm the theory yeah like we, the, we the, fail to we fail to reject the null hypothesis so. right exactly um yeah. so actually i should go change that because that, that i wrote the article in like a, a couple hours i think that um number one as i point out in the article i would like to see studies control for ethnicities within asian americans too um and also income so on average like in aggregate Asian Americans have higher household incomes than white Americans do. Well, I think part of that is because of immigration quotas, uh, but keep going. I agree with you. Yeah. Um, if we had immigration that was much higher, those numbers would be a lot more different. But we also know that within the Asian community, it, it breaks down tremendously differently. So like Indian Americans, Chinese Americans tend to have higher median incomes. Uh, Southeast Asians tend to have lower median incomes, uh, especially if they're of like refugee origin or something. So... I would like to see studies breaking that down because all too often it all gets generalized into Asian and that gets kind of meaningless in a way. Um, if there's, cause I'm pretty sure certain Asian groups benefit from affirmative action, such as like Southeast Asians or someone of refugee. Well, like certain specific Southeast Asians. Like I, I definitely, I don't think I benefited from affirmative action, um, but carry on. Sorry. Are you like, sorry, I didn't see your surname. Are you, oh, what's your ethnicity? I'm, I'm, I'm Chinese American. Okay, yeah. are you calling Chinese Southeast Asian? I mean, I know Southern China goes very far south. Yeah, I, well, I was kind of, I was kind of saying Northeast is implying Chinese American. Yeah, no, no, I don't think that Chinese Americans may. I don't think they benefit from affirmative action in the sense that there's not probably outreach by Harvard to get more Asian applicants. I'm almost certain that that's not true. And yeah, I I'm, I'm, that, I'm, I am certain that that's not true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain of that. Um, Anyways, at, at least just going on, we want to. I want to talk more about the affirmative action thing. I think it's a very fascinating topic to talk about. But just just to kind of conclude with that that point, um, it could be true that Asians do have to score higher SAT scores. It's just that it's the study that is often shown with that one image of it conclusive that that's true by the own author's acknowledgement because of the lack of other variables there could be confounding that that study may be indicators that asians deal with a harder time in admissions but the factor may not be the sat scores yeah um so i guess it's not like once again it's not definitively proven like we can't definitively reject the null, null hypothesis but it's i guess it's the sort of thing where i don't like i still personally believe it to be true in my sure opinion. i think that's fine i think it's yeah. fine to, 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 to um... yeah um sorry yeah um yeah so are there any like specific misconceptions about affirmative action that you want people to know about uh, besides that I think what frustrates me so much in the affirmative action debate is that there's this hyper focus on like these tiny quantities of black students who 
are implied to be taking spots away from Asian Americans. And it's kind of silly. I mean, just on the face of it, because there's so few black students at these institutions, but even where there's a larger amount of black students, as I point out with Harvard, most of them aren't even black students of slave ancestry. Um, they're either mixed race or they're African immigrants. Yeah, oh, I agree with you. I would, I would I'd also argue that I think there are some people in the anti-affirmative action camp that would be more than willing to like say that as like like evidence that affirmative action doesn't help. Um, sure. Um, yeah. But I think that above all, I think that there's just kind of a misunderstanding of what affirmative action is. Uh, the idea is that these institutions seek out students who are capable and encourage them to apply or show them how to apply. That's really what affirmative action is. It's not like you get X points because of your race. And that kind of ties back to um, Title VII. Um, what is that in Roman numerals? Is that nine? Title nine of- Well, Title VII is seven. Um, seven, sorry. Title yeah. seven of the 64 Civil Rights Act, which is that private corporations and colleges uh, try to recruit minorities to apply to their schools. So for example, Berkeley has banned affirmative action since 1996. So Berkeley's not gonna be doing a bunch of outreach to like black neighborhoods. But like, that's how affirmative action works. So like in Harvard's case, like Joanne Reed, who's on MSNBC, I would say she was, she was, a, process, she was a product of affirmative action in the sense that she admits she was just some nobody student in Colorado who had really good grades and Harvard tracked her down and encouraged her to apply because of her race. That's true. But that's not the same thing as giving people scores or, or, or minus points or plus points because of their race in the admissions process. That's two different things. And people call the latter affirmative action, especially when it disproportionately does not benefit the supposed recipients of affirmative action. Even ignoring that most Black students at Harvard are not Blacks of enslaved ancestry, it's obvious that the students that Asian, the spots that Asian American candidates are losing out to is mostly to white students. And, and those white students often are disproportionately legacy students. Um, and even if they're not legacy students, I mean, it, it's still not affirmative action, right? Like that, that's just, it's just not affirmative action. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So I, <laughs> Um, if you if you agree with that or disagree with that, like I I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear you kind of. I think you could argue that like some of these things, like even if they don't fit the definition of affirmative action, they are like a direct, like they are causally related to affirmative action. Like you know the whole thing, like we we talked about it like before about like scoring Asian students poorly over stereotypes. I think you could theoretically make the argument that even if it's not affirmative action, it is like an attempt to rationalize certain selection processes that were a direct outgrowth of affirmative action, if that makes any sense. Um, does that make any sense or am I like way no, too no, deep? No, like, no, no, uh, you're not going too deep. I, I might've missed you on one thing. Say that again. Um, so like, you know, you know how we talked about, like, for example, like the, the admissions processors in like Harvard, they might, um, they might score Asian students poorly over stereotypes in, in a way where you could very validly consider it to be racist. Um, and like the whole thing about how that's not like that, like that's not definitionally affirmative action because affirmative action has to do with like Title seven of the Civil Rights Act, I believe you said. Um, like I think that even if it's not affirmative action, I think you could still say that it's a direct outgrowth of like trying to rationalize certain processes that happened as a result of affirmative action, if that makes sense. Like the whole sure, thing. I, I would agree with you on that. 
Yeah, like the whole thing about scoring Asian students poorly over stereotypes. Um, I think you could make the argument that like if they need to fulfill certain selection processes that result in specific like racial portions, um, but like like people need to find some way to rationalize it. And like like a lot of the time that rationalization doesn't come from like uplifting or like like mending the divisions. If they have like an inherently meritocratic idea of how these like processes are selected, then their rationalization might come through like like becoming slightly racist against Asians. Does that make sense? No, I agree with you on that. I do think that universities kind of use affirmative action as maybe an excuse to under-enroll Asian students. But I just think that they use it as an excuse. Like I'm not, because at least in, um, at least in places where affirmative action has been abolished, I mean, the decline is mostly of black students. It, they, it doesn't scale with higher students of, Asian descent. All right. Usually so like that, if there are fewer black students, like what like what race tends to get represented more as a well, result? Well, like proportionally speaking, you have an increase in well, it's kind of complicated because we don't really know in the private sector. Like most of our research comes from the University of California, um, which has been like rapidly increasing its like, Hispanic enrollment, um, and its white enrollment has kind of marginally been declining along with the increase in Asian enrollment broadly. It's Actually, let me see. Um, I'm actually, I, okay, I shouldn't say that because I'm actually not sure how Asian enrollment changes. Well, we, what the, the one study did find is that Asian American students were admitted to top tier schools, just not their first choices more often than not. Um, that's the Berkeley paper. Is this the, this is the thing that was written by Espenshad? Um. No, this is um, Bleemer. Um, yeah. It's a uh, point number three in my article. Yeah. Um, and by the way, I still think that that's not great. Like, yeah, uh, part of the reason why it's not great is like, obviously, like you mentioned that, like you were friends with a lot of Asians growing up. Like, you know, you know, the, like the whole like idea about like how much Chinese parents like prize merit meritocracy, like, like the whole thing about like, oh, I need to get my kid into Harvard or Princeton or whatever. And like how yeah. a lot of like a lot of that is a direct outgrowth of like, like civil service exams in like, like late imperial China and the way that had to do with meritocracy then. And like, obviously yes. that has like a huge trickle down effect into the culture of like Asian parents in the present day and like their mindset about how they need to get their kids into elite institutions. And I have some disagreement with that, but I think that does like create some, like, I think like somewhat- I had a whole segment. I'm sorry, I gotta stop interrupting. Okay. Yeah, I think that like, I think <laughs> I think that fuels some like 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 resentment where I have some disagreements with it, but I still think it's partially understandable. Yeah, I I had a whole segment about the Gaokao and how um, like the problems with a strict merit-based test admission system versus a holistic admission system, and why, where I think we kind of need a balance of the two. I struck it from the article because the article was just getting too long, um, but I. I'll just say my maybe you could write another out. article afterwards about it. Yeah. I could, I could. Um, yeah. It would be kind of interesting to do. I, I think that there's cases for both systems, and I would like to see a mix of both. But I understand that to, on one hand, the reason we can't do the strict merit-based admission system is because I mean we're not a homogenous country where we have a super majority of like Han Chinese, and therefore our divisions are mostly in terms of economic, right? Like. 
this is a country where race tracks really closely with economics and therefore outcomes. If we had a system where everybody just got in based on the highest SATs, then it would obviously just be disproportionately a determination of wealth. Now, that's not, a, that's not to say that a lot of poor Asian students don't perform highly well, despite being poor. Of course, it's absolutely true. Yeah, I think, well, for example, like Chinese immigrants tend to have some of the most upward mobility in this country, which is something I'm proud of. Right, yeah, of course. And yeah. Nigerian Americans, too, have the yeah, highest exactly. of any ethnic group. So, like, it, it's true that there are exceptions to that rule, but in aggregate, usually the SAT scores correlate with race. I mean, sorry, correlate with income. And because so much of income correlates with race, I think that there is an argument that universities make, which is that if we want to have an outsized impact on the social good of the country, an example I gave to somebody I was talking about was like, take a Nepalese student who is growing up in a uh, low income area in Oprah. This is very common. I grew up with a lot of like Southeast Asian um, kids who grew up in the ghetto, right? I think that the argument for university would be is like, compared to a wealthier kid who's white that may have comparable scores to the Nepalese student. If we send the Nepalese student to med school, he'll go back home to his community and start a hospital. Whereas if you send the wealthy white kid to the med school, I mean, he might just be perpetuating the same wealth that his parents already has. Now you can make arguments whether that's okay or not, but I understand the social argument for universities and saying, yeah, I'd probably favor the poor Nepalese student who's academically capable and qualified enough to be here, but may not be the best of the best. Do you agree with that or do you kind of disagree with that? I think that's kind of a difference in how I think universities sort of see themselves as social roles in a way. Yeah. Well, I think there's I think there's some like there's some overlap between the argument that you made and so one of my co-hosts talked with this author, William Derezowitz, who had who's probably like even less supportive of affirmative action than the two of us are, where like one of his like main like his main complaint would be that like the like the US's affirmative action system, like, well, two things. One is like, you know, the whole idea about how like a lot of the time black students in colleges, they tend to be more recent immigrant rather than the descendants of slaves. So that was one of his points against affirmative action. But his another one of his points against affirmative action is that a lot of the time they focus too much on racial diversity as opposed to class diversity. So I, I think yeah, I think that in your example, I think I might be on board with it because it like supports class diversity in the same way that like not only would I be on board with that, but I would also be on board with maybe like when it comes to the white students that attend elite institutions, maybe we should focus less on like legacies or wealthy whites and more on like working class whites. Yeah, of course. I mean, I would prefer poor whites going to university. I would prefer that poor people of all races had a better chance of going to university than a wealthy person, at least when it comes to these elite institutions, because it would significantly increase their personal mobility. I totally agree on that. It's just that, let's be real though, that will almost always correlate with race. So I, I kind of feel like, I mean, that may just be a better system. So like, no, 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 I, I agree with what you're saying. I think to kind of add to that point, it doesn't matter to me that wealthy blacks go to Harvard. Like that to me is is, is kind of besides yes it's just the whole richard reeves dream hoarders thing about like upper middle class people exactly so i totally agree on that point we can focus more on income it will disproportionately favor black people though because black people are disproportionately poor assuming they're qualified enough to get into harvard 
then but then like see- like the the black people that get into these elite institutions like the, it'll actually be like more beneficial and have more positive externalities for society because class there's more class representation i agree i totally agree i know we, then we agree the, the, actually <laughs> yeah, i, I guess we, we do, disagree yeah. at all then i mean at, at least on that topic i don't think we disagree at all then because that's, that's something i agree with i don't favor race admissions over economic admissions but economic admissions would just correlate with race I think they a would lot, cor- a lot th- of the time. I think they would correlate with race a lot of the it would, time. It would be fewer and- Obama's kids going to school and more of kids from like St. Louis that are like actually highly qualified. Yeah. Yeah, I think it would correlate with race a lot of the time, and then in the few cases where it doesn't correlate with race, it would still be beneficial for society. Sure. No, I I totally agree with that. Yeah. All right. I wish I had more questions, but this is this is like I think this was one of the like the the coolest and most interesting conversations I've ever had on the podcast. Um, yeah, no, no, I, I definitely am. I, I'm kind of surprised. It was really interesting, actually, to talk about. Yeah, that people invite me on podcasts and they're just always so like boring, like blah 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 blah. But I'm actually glad that you like not only pushed back, but like made some really interesting points, and I was really happy to talk to you about this. Yeah. Well, Daryl Owens, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify. Podbean or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.